this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, we appreciate you guys so much. And the music, uh, Sunday night and Monday night, was just wonderful. And uh, the lyrics are just so gospel-rich. And we just appreciate you guys so much, our worship team. We'll open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Um, If you're new today, we have been studying the Gospel of John. And the plan all along has been to be in this chapter on this day. Okay? Um, It's all been leading to this. And so today we're going to talk about hope. Uncontained hope. We need water to live, and we need hope to live, to thrive, and we're going to see how we find that in the resurrection of Christ. John chapter 20, we looked last Easter at verses 1 through 18, and so it's not going to be our focal point today, but since we're we're, we're, uh, walking through John, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, then we're going to go back and sort of highlight it, look at some highlights from 1 through 18, but our real focus this morning It's going to be verses 19 and following. Uncontained hope. John chapter 20. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. When Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, I I pray for everyone who's here today. Um, You have brought each one here. You love each one. You care for each one. Just as you knew exactly what was happening in Thomas's mind and heart, you know exactly what's happening in each one of our minds and hearts. And you know where we are as far as the relationship with you. You know whether that confession, my Lord and my God, is just maybe a confession that we've made intellectually or if it's something that we've really made with our heart. You know the difference. Father, I pray that it would be a confession of the mind and the heart that we would see your work on our behalf today, that we would rejoice in that, that we would see how that changes everything and how our lives can be swept up in a river of uncontainable hope. And we pray it all in the name of the risen Christ, our Lord Jesus. Amen. In the film The Hunger Games, um, President Snow is a dictator who rules over this futuristic society. And each year, they pick 24 young people from the ages of 12 to 18 to participate in these Hunger Games, which are really like a battle to the death. There's only one survivor each year. And they do it to basically intimidate everybody. One day in the film... President Snow is having a conversation with Seneca Crane, one of his underlings who sort of runs the Hunger Games for him. And he says to Crane, he says, why do we have, why do we have these games anyway? Why do we allow someone to survive? I mean, after all, we could just go round up 24 people and execute them, and that would intimidate the populace. That would make the same point. And he says, we do it the way that we do it because we want the people to have a little bit of hope. You know, as long as they have a little, a little spark of hope, um, as long as it's contained, then it's okay. But if not, if it's too much hope, 
it's dangerous. But a spark, you can contain it. Well, today I want to talk to you about uncontained hope and dangerous hope. Hope that is dangerous to everything that is evil, everything that's ugly, everything that is false, everything that is wrong, everything that is sad. Uncontained hope because the grave could not contain the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our focus this morning is really going to be his appearances to the disciples in verses 19 and following, because we looked at 1 through 18 last Easter. But I want to go back and sort of highlight a couple of really important things from verses 1 through 18. We see there that God gives the honor of being the first people at the empty tomb to women. John mentions one woman. But we know from the other Gospels that there were actually several other women that were with Mary Magdalene at the tomb on the first Easter morning, which is an absolutely remarkable thing and totally consistent with how Jesus treated women throughout the course of his ministry and totally inconsistent with how their culture treated them Um, because women in that culture were looked down upon Men, most men in that culture would get up each day. They would thank God for not creating them to be a a Gentile or a woman. Uh, Women were very vulnerable. They were, um, they were not, they were often abused. They were not protected. But we see that Jesus gives women a dignity and a respect that was unheard of in that culture. They were very much a part of his team. And this is totally consistent with who he is. I mean, Jesus, you read the four Gospels, who's he constantly reaching out to? He's spending time with those who are on the margins, those who are weak, those who are vulnerable, those who are um, uh, women, children, you know, people that were looked down upon by everybody else. Jesus was, was, was all about uh, reaching out to those people and giving them a dignity that they, they had never had. And so it's remarkable. Um, Women are the first ones at the empty tomb. And not only that, but John's account is so remarkable because Mary Magdalene, one of those women, is the first one to have a conversation with the risen Christ. And again, that's absolutely remarkable, given her past. Because Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene, before she met Jesus, she had been possessed by demons, seven demons. And so she led a tormented, hopeless life was a complete outcast. And one day she met Jesus and he cast the demons out and everything was transformed. What's the message to us? It means that no matter what your past, you know, who you are, whatever your experiences are, listen, there is every reason for hope. Jesus loves you. And Jesus is all about putting pieces of lives back together and mending broken lives. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through today, I can promise you that. And he can do it because he's alive. He's a risen Savior. So let's talk about it. What do we we see here in verses 19 and following? First of all, we see that the risen Christ replaces fear with joy and peace. Let's uh, check out verse 19. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, notice the mindset of these disciples on that night. They're huddled behind locked doors. They're in fear for their lives. They've seen Jesus executed in the most brutal of ways, and they know that can be them if they're not careful. So they're huddled in fear behind locked doors. Now, skeptics of the resurrection of Christ have to answer some questions. How did these guys, who were so fearful that they're huddled behind locked doors, how did these same guys stand up a few weeks later in front of thousands of people on the day of Pentecost and proclaim that Jesus was alive? How did these same people, who were huddled in fear behind locked doors, how did they leave their lives and spend the rest of their lives traveling around and bearing witness to the fact that Jesus was resurrected in front of crowds and authorities, many of whom wanted to kill them. And almost all of them were killed. Almost all of them were martyred for their faith in the resurrection of Christ and for the fact that they insisted on continuing to preach it. Now, would they die? Would they willingly sacrifice themselves for what they knew to be a lie? What transformed their fear into a willingness to sacrifice themselves with abandon. What accounts for the spread of the message of the resurrection of Christ? How did this little movement of a a little group of people huddled in fear behind locked doors, how did that become in a generation something that, that turned the whole known world at the time upside down, or maybe right side up? How did that happen? How do you account for the growth of the early church. Now, if you question the resurrection of Christ, the burden of proof is on you to answer those questions. The ball is in your court to provide answers. Christians have an answer to that. And we haven't answered all of those questions. And Paul tells it to us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you. These words are written just a couple of decades after Christ. He says, so, you know, the people were still alive at this point that were eyewitnesses. For I deliver to you, as the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go ask them what they saw. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Now, there's our answer, okay, to that whole series of questions that I posed. What is yours if you don't believe in the resurrection? And please don't say, well, you know, these are first century people. They're kind of primitive in their beliefs. They believed in things like resurrection. No, they didn't. That wasn't a part of the Jewish worldview at the time. That wasn't a part of the Greek or pagan worldview at the time. And it wasn't a part of the disciples' worldview. They're not expecting Jesus to be raised. Something happens that totally rocks their world and changes their worldview. And it was a fact 
that they saw Jesus standing there. Professor John Lennox teaches math at Oxford University in England. He's a committed Christian. And Dr. Lennox points out that a lot of skeptics of miracles and so forth say, well, you know, this can't happen because it's not a part of the natural process. Of course, what Christians are saying is not that the resurrection was somehow a part of a natural process, but that someone infused into the natural process from outside tremendous power. If you put $1,000 into a drawer tonight, and you put another 1000 in tomorrow night, you're going to have $2,000 in that drawer. Suppose you go on the third day, and there's $500 in that drawer. Does that mean that the laws of arithmetic have been violated? Does it mean that one plus one no longer equals two? No, it means that somebody from the outside put their hand in that drawer and took out $1,500. At Easter, God reached into the drawer of history and removed the sting of death. And that's why these guys are transformed from these timid, fearful souls into bold witnesses who are willing to give their lives. Verse 20. When he had said this, showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, full of joy, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Now this greeting, very common, still today in the Middle East. If you're among Jewish people in the Middle East, you say shalom. If you're among Arab people, you say salam or assalamu alaikum, which means peace be with you. Still common greeting today in the Middle East. And it was a common greeting at the time. But when Jesus says it, it's not just a greeting. (laughs) Because Jesus has the power and the authority to really give you peace. Remember what he said in chapter 14? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Tim Keller, um, author of The Reason for God, says this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? This is how the first hearers felt who heard of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. So the risen Christ replaces fear with joy and peace. Second, the risen Christ replaces meaninglessness with purpose and power. I mean, let's face it. If there is no life beyond the grave then our lives are meaningless. If we just got here by chance, and one day we're simply going to be annihilated, then our lives are meaningless. And we have to confess that. In an article in Esquire magazine, Stephen Marche, who's a cultural critic and an atheist, says this, materialistic atheism does not provide a very comfortable way to deal with the dead. Christians have an afterlife. Atheists like myself have rotting corpses and oblivion. And that's what it comes down to. And see, this is why 
Even if you have some questions about the resurrection, you should want it to be true. Because if it's not, your life is meaningless. The good news is that it is true. And there is a vast mountain of evidence um, that more evidence exists for the resurrection of Christ than for historical events that we take for granted as true throughout the course of history. And I would refer you to Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, and that would be a spinoff for many others that would be helpful in in helping you to, to see that. And if it's true, it means that we, our lives, have meaning. It means that Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus has begun a new creation, and that he's calling us to join in with him and to be a part of that new creation. Look at what he says in verse 21. Peace be with you, here it is, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead just so you could go to heaven when you die. That's part of it. But Jesus died and rose from the dead, not only to save you from your sins, but to call you and enlist you. And send you as one of his ambassadors in the new creation that he is building. And that means that our lives are filled with purpose, with meaning. He rose to inaugurate a new creation. A new creation that's going to be consummated when he returns. But until then, we're to be joining with him. We are the sent ones. You know, whatever your vocation, whatever your job, whether you're in school, whatever, you're an ambassador for Christ. And that means joining with Jesus in his work of helping the hurting, the weak, the vulnerable. It means doing justice and compassion and mercy. It means being salt and light in every arena of society. It means showing kindness and love in every way possible to every person possible. And listen, we can't really love people if we don't share the good news of the gospel with them. If we really love them, how can we withhold that from them? Adrian Warnock um, is the author of Raised with Christ, great book on the resurrection. And Adrian uh, lives in London, and he was talking about the fact that his wife was with a bunch of other moms, and they were out like with the kids, like a play date. And one of the moms, who was an, an English woman, she was not an immigrant, okay? She was native-born. Um, and they got into a conversation about Christ. And this, this young woman said to Adrian's wife, you think Jesus was, was raised from the dead? This is Western Europe, folks. You know, Warnock also tells about a British chocolate company a few years ago that thought they would capitalize on Easter um, with their Easter eggs and everything. Um, And part of their promotion, until they had to withdraw it, you'll hear why in a second, um, was that they they said to people, you know, millions of Britons will purchase uh, chocolate eggs uh, during this holiday, but most of them don't even know that they symbolize Jesus' birth. I mean, you know, we can laugh at that, but it's our fault. It's our fault. It really is. 
for not sharing the gospel, not sharing the message of the resurrection enough. And so Jesus has written the music. We are to play it, but even in that, we don't do it in our own power. Because what does he say in verse 22? He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the word in Greek that's translated as breathed here is the word used for wind. The Holy Spirit is like the wind of God that fills our sails and enables us, gives us the power to live for Christ and to carry out the work that he's called us to do. So the risen Christ replaces meaninglessness with purpose and power. Third, the risen Christ replaces cynicism and doubt with faith and worship. Verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, let's not be too hard on doubting Thomas, because we have a lot in common with him. Because most of us, at least most of us adults, are show-me kinds of people. You know, I'll believe it when I see it. And life just kind of hardens us as adults in that way. That's why you know, Jesus said that you know, you've got to become like a little child um, and humble yourself in, in that way. But you know, life uh, gives us lots of cynicism, lots of doubt. It had Thomas. But now something happens that just totally breaks in and shatters Thomas's worldview and doubt. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, Jesus knows everything that's been happening in Thomas's mind and heart, just like he knows everything that's happening in our mind and heart today. And so he invites Thomas to do the very thing that he said he would have to do in order to believe. But Thomas doesn't take him up on his offer, does he? No, he, Thomas, just, Thomas is just swept up in wonder and worship and faith. And he says in verse 28 to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts this worship. And if he, that means that if he wasn't God... That's blasphemy. Okay, but Jesus here and in other places accepts that terminology for himself. And see, this is where John has been going. Since the first verse of this book, right? What do we see? In verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas falls before him in verse 20 and says, My Lord and my God. Now listen, what validates that? What validates that? What validates Jesus' claim to be God? How do we know he was God? The resurrection. Paul says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God 
with power by his resurrection from the dead. It was the resurrection validated everything that Jesus, every claim that he ever made, everything that he ever did, and it validated the fact that on the cross he was really paying the price for our sins. No resurrection. Jesus was just another martyr, and we're still in our sins. His resurrection was what validated everything he did, everything he said, and validated the fact that he really did pay it all for our sins. You know, I love baseball. I love going to baseball games. And when our family goes to a game, sort of our, the normal thing that we do is we go and we find our seats and just kind of, you know, get in a comfort zone there, maybe put some stuff down or whatever, but we see where we're going to be sitting but then we go back out on the concourse, and the girls uh, say that Dad's out cruising for food, you know. And so we're out on the concourse, we're getting some, some food, some hot dogs, whatever. Um, but when I do that, I always make sure I've got that ticket for my seat in my pocket. Because I know when I try to go back to my seat, there are going to be ushers there, and they're going to want me to, sometimes they ask me to produce that ticket so that I can prove that, I really do belong in that section. Yes, I really did pay for a ticket here. And I know I'm going to have to produce that, so I make sure I have that. That ticket is like a receipt. It's like a validation. Okay, and the resurrection is like that. The resurrection is like a giant receipt stamped across history that validates every claim that Jesus ever made, everything that he did, and validates the fact that our sins have truly been paid for. And see, when we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, the Bible says that in a way we're united with what Christ has done for us in his death and his resurrection. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, many of you were old enough to remember when you didn't pay for everything with plastic. I can remember as a little kid going to gas stations and seeing my mom roll down a window and give cash to an attendant who pumped her gas. Some of you wish we could go back to that uh, today, especially some of the days we had during the winter when you got out to pump gas. Um, but I, I, can, I can remember that. Lots of things. You know, we, we paid for, we wrote these things called checks. Remember that? Right? And cash... Um, not always plastic. Um, it, when my son started driving, um, he had wheels, uh, but not money. <laughs> and so, you know, when the poor guy would go to get gas, um, rather than make him go inside a convenience store, you know, and wait in the line and, uh, and go to the cash register or, or whatever, um, you know, a lot of times I'd, I'd just give him my card. To go get gas. Now, what was Caleb doing when I did that? He was kind of like taking on my identity, right? He was taking on my credit. He, didn't, he hadn't earned that, okay? But it's like what I had earned, what I had accomplished, and my identity was kind of like becoming his. And Paul says that's the way it is with those of us who have trusted in Christ and followed him. You know, we're united with Christ and what he's done. When Jesus died... The old you died. Isn't that great? We're a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
And when Christ rose from the dead, it says we were united with him in that as well. It says that we are raised to walk in newness of life, you know, to live a brand new life. And this is why Christianity and the resurrection is about uncontained hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that Jesus has done. He did the work that you sent him to do, and Father, we pray that we would be about the work that you've sent us to do, and that is to join with Christ in this new creation that is being built. Um, We thank you for the fact that you have changed our hearts, um, that you have made us into new creations, and Lord, help us now to be about the business of spreading that as we um, share the gospel, um, as we do good works that help people see the, the beauty and love and glory of Christ. Father, I pray for everyone who's here today. Um, I don't know where they are in their lives. I don't know what all of them are going through and, or where they are in terms of a relationship with you, but I know that you do. And Father, I, I pray that you would speak to hearts right now Father, for, for those who haven't yet entered into a relationship with you, then, Father, I pray that right now faith would be ignited in their hearts, that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see Jesus, to see his work, and to turn to Jesus and trust in him, experience the new life, the eternal life that Jesus gives. Father, for, the, for those of us who entered into this room today already believers, Lord, we We want to love you more deeply. Um, We want to see, experience more of your love and just be swept up in the river of hope that has been provided through the resurrection. And Father, we want to to bring others with us um, so that they're swept up in that life-giving stream as well. As, As we just continue to pray for just a moment, you know, if you're here today and you want to talk with someone about a relationship with Christ in just a moment, we're going to stand, and um, Pastor David's going to be down here at the front. I just want to invite you to, to come and just share uh, what God has put on your heart. You're here today, and um, God's leading you to be a part of this church family and seek membership here. We want to, we want to invite you to come um, today as well. And if there's just a need in your life and you'd like somebody to pray with, you come. So, Father, thanks so much uh, for this time of worship together today. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the resurrection. Um, Thank you for the uncontained hope that we have in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen.
You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together. 